So, uh, let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you speak to us. Help us to listen well now. Amen. So we've been in this series working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, and uh, it's an amazing book. It's also, depending how you come at it, can be experienced as a slightly depressing book. Um, I got some feedback this week from someone who uh, is newish to the church who said that he's hated the last four Sundays. I thought that was awesome. It's very strong. He didn't use the, he, he, There was an expletive before the word hate, which added some force to it. And he just said, oh, I don't come to church to feel miserable. Um, other people have said to me how much they've just found it so incredibly refreshing and helpful and wonderful, and they've loved it. But I, I feel for this fellow. I really do. Ecclesiastes exposes in a way that... Um, few of the other books of the Old Testament do, exposes all the enigmas, the problems, the challenges, the pain, and the brokenness of life, and does that uh, with extraordinarily penetrating insight. So yet, it can feel like for 35 minutes, we talk about all the problems of the world, and then for five minutes, actually, there's hope. This passage this morning is a little different. Uh, this passage has no hope. No, only joking. This passage is all bleak. Uh, no, this passage starts to point us very clearly in the direction of hope. So, so some people think that this is actually the turning point of the book or the center of the book that, that sort of starts to lead us to the home stretch. Uh, and we'll, we'll have a look and see what that is. But this book is intensely practical. This passage is practical and challenging. So let's get into it. Let's think about it. And if you want to frame it in the rest of the book, go online and listen to the previous sermons. So there are four instructions in this passage that shape how we're to understand it. And the first instruction is, is right here in verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. So yeah, what does that mean? Well, the house of God, this was probably, this text was probably written third century BC. And what's in view is people going to the temple in Jerusalem. And they're going to the temple, uh, and it was a, a regular part of Jewish experience that you had to go to the temple to offer sacrifices a couple of times of the year. And so this is addressing a person who is a person of faith, who's going to the temple, and there's a very, very, very strong instruction here to guard your steps. Now, the word steps under here is, uh, is also actually in the Hebrew, could be the word feet or the way of your feet. He said, what does that mean? Well, in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, faith or life with God is described, and the law is described as a halakha, as a way, a, a journey, a way of walking. And what matters for a person of faith is that we walk with God we see Jesus taking this metaphor up and saying how important it is that we stay on the narrow walk or the narrow way that leads to life and not go onto the broad, easy paths that lead to destruction. And he's saying here there is something about religious people, let alone other people. There's something about religious people that means when you go to temple, when you go to worship, be very careful. Be very careful about the way of your whole life. 
See, the halakha, the walk, the path you're on is not just about going to temple. It's actually about the direction and the orientation and the steps you are taking with every part of your life. And you say, huh, why, why would you warn someone who's religious, who's going to God, to be very careful about how you live your life? I mean, it'd be like having someone standing at the gate as you come in off Darling Street, and as you come in, there'd be someone going, how have you gone on your tax returns this week? Make really, sh make really sure you don't cheat the government as you go to church. What have you been watching on your internet browser this week? Make very sure that, that you're, you're morally pure online this week as you go to the house of God. Make sure you're not, you're not you know, bullying someone at work as you go to church. Like, why would you say that? It would be an interesting experiment, wouldn't it? We could try that. It wouldn't be a really user-friendly experience of church. Well, there's a very great risk for us religious people. And what's the risk? The risk is that when we come to church, when we do our religion, we can offer a sacrifice of fools. You go, well, be very going here to listen rather than to offer. What does that mean? What, what do you think a sacrifice of a fool might be? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. Uh, a fool, biblically, uh, in wisdom literature, is a person who lives as though there is no God. They may believe there is a God intellectually, but they live as though there isn't. A fool says in their heart, there is no God. So what's a sacrifice of a fool? A sacrifice of a fool is a person who comes to temple, who's like, well, Yahweh, I'm here and I worship you. And temple was very public. It's like Jewish worship was pretty, it wasn't all very private and quiet. So, and, and even today, if you go to the, the Western Wall in Jerusalem where everyone's praying, everyone's praying out loud and it's noisy and it's loud. And, and so this is a man who goes to temple with all the crowds and he's very religious. He's ostentatiously making vows and promises. Yes, God, I promise that I will never cheat. I will never lie. I promise that I'm going to give 10% of my gross income to the temple, you know, I, I, making all these great big promises. But guess what he does when he leaves the temple? He just lives as though there is no God. <laughs> He's a hypocrite. He's a hypocrite. says one thing in the temple and then just goes and lives as though God didn't exist. When you make a vow to God, don't delay to fulfill it. Don't say one thing and do another thing. Uh, he has no pleasure in fools. God has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It's better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. I was, we were talking about this passage in our small group on Thursday night, workshopping the sermon, so to speak. 
And, and I said, what's the point of this? And why, why do you think this is so important? And someone in our group said, well, because God sees through all the BS. And that's it, right? I always say it is entirely possible to fool a lot of the people a lot of the time, but you can't fool God any of the time. God sees through, and he's not impressed. The sacrifice of a fool is somebody who comes to God and goes, well, I'm all religious. I'm, oh, yes, look at me. I'm so very religious, God. But when I'm out in the world, I live as though I'm God. See, this is the fundamental problem we as human beings have. We get confused about who's God. So... Biblical worship is to say God is God and I'm the creature. A fool says, no, 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 no. I'm really at the center. <laughs> I, I've got to make the choices. I'll do what I need to do to make my life work. And God will be a useful ally or resource in the task of making my life work. But I'm at the center and I'm calling the shots. It's better not to make a vow than to make one and, we, and not fulfill it. We know that, don't we? I don't know if you've ever done any fundraising and you say, oh, I'm doing the uh, you know, 40-hour famine or a ping-pong-a-thon or a ride to conquer cancer and you do a whip round at the office or on social media and you all know the person who says, to you, yeah, look, I, I, I don't have any money on me now, but I'm, I'm, you know, put me down for 100 bucks." And then they never come through with it. <laughs> they avoid you for the next six months. Who would you rather have? The person who says, well, I'll give you 100. I'm sure I'm in. I'm in. I just don't have my wallet on me now. Or the person doesn't say anything, but then signs up and actually gives without saying a word. Who would you rather have? Well, the person who just comes through with the goods. Not the hypocrite. So the problem is our hypocrisy that is fueled by a confusion about who is God. We say, I'm God. God isn't God. I'll live as though I'm in control, as though I'm in charge. The, the, the answer is, against this view, the answer is to go near to listen. Here's the second instruction. What does that mean? Well, what stance do I have to have internally if I'm going to listen to you? What's the posture of my heart if I'm listening to your guidance and your instruction and your direction? Humility. It takes real humility to listen to somebody else, doesn't it? I mean, and other person-centeredness. And we're bad at listening to people, aren't we? Mostly. We all love talking about ourselves. It's much harder work to listen. It really is, isn't it? <laughs> That's why there's a whole industry, which is a good industry, I'm not knocking it at all. There's a whole industry where we pay people to listen to us. It's called going to see a therapist or a counselor. And it's invaluable. 
because we want to speak, but we need to be listened to. But listening is hard, and it's humbling because when I listen to you, I have to leave my agenda to one side, and I have to be utterly present to you to let your words be all that I'm focusing on and paying attention to in the moment. That's hard, right? How much harder is it with God? To take a stance of humility and come to God and say, well, God, you tell me how the world works. You tell me what's important. You tell me what really matters in life. I find it, this is so challenging, isn't it? Because don't you find yourself at the heart of your relationship with God? It's so easy to slip into a you telling God what God should be doing for you so that your life will work? Or maybe it's just me. I, I honestly think, often, I think I know better than God how the world should work. And, and sometimes that's really a legitimate, that's, that's understandable, right? I look at the world and I go, God, I think you should end modern-day slavery, for example. Let's choose an out. Okay, that's obvious. I, God, you should end it today. And I don't know why you haven't, but you should, because I think basically I know better than you. Or I go, God, you should change something in me today. You need to heal me of this particular illness or ailment today. I know what needs to happen, God. Why don't you do it? I know what you need to do in my business. I know what you need to do, God, in my family. So why don't you just do it, God? And it's really easy, isn't it? It's really easy to just slip into this approach to God that still says, I'm at the center. The only way to not offer the sacrifice of fool, the way to guard your steps, to watch your work, your, your walk, is to develop the discipline of humbly listening to God. Listen to His Word. Allow the Scriptures to be the means by which God speaks to you. Go near to God to listen, not to talk. And by listening, it means you've got to listen to, to hear and to obey. <laughs> See, if you, if you hear someone say something, but you don't let it affect you, at one level, you haven't really heard them, have you? So you listen humbly to hear what God is saying. Uh, Dallas Willard, who is a philosopher, he's now dead, but has had a huge impact on me. And Dallas Willard says, uh, he's got a little book called Hearing God, and he says, the most important discipline for the recovery of our humanity is to learn to listen, uh, to learn to hear God. No greater challenge, to hear God speak, to listen, slow down enough, pay attention, to be humble enough. So guard your steps. Go near to listen rather than to live a life of hypocrisy. And now I'm sure you're going, I'm not, I'm hoping at the moment you're thinking, yep, that's it, Mark. I get it. I'm not going to be a hypocrite. Okay, all in favor of not being hypocrites this week. 
Raise your hand. Yes, I'm not going to be a hypocrite. I'm going to... And all in favor of listening to God versus ignoring Him. Yeah, yeah, okay. So yes, we're going to listen. We're not going to be hypocrites. It's going to be great. Ah, yes, it will be. Maybe. (laughs) And I'll tell you, I'll tell you why I say maybe, because let's not underestimate how hard this can be, because... Where does, where, where, what is the thing that leads us astray? What is the thing that makes it so hard to live for God? Verse 6, the third instruction. (laughs) Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. Oh my goodness. Now, it seems like it's very possible that the, the thing about us that is going to take us off path with God, that's going to lead us down a path of hypocrisy, of living as though we're God and living uh, as though uh, we're in charge of the world, is our mouths. And so you go, why is he banging on about this? Well, he's banging on about this because uh, the role of the mouth and the tongue and, and our words are fundamental to reality. So uh, let me pull up James chapter. Where's it gone? James chapter three, which was read before. Um, as you saw this, this James chapter three takes Ecclesiastes five verse six. Don't let your mouth lead you into sin, and now shows you why this is so important and how hard it is. And he says, anyone who is never at fault in what they say, is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. So don't let your mouth lead you into sin. If you can control your mouth, guess what? You'll never sin. You're perfect. You're perfect. You see, um, he then piles on these metaphors to make this point, the, the writer of James does. We put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us. We can turn the whole animal. Or ships uh, are large and driven by strong winds, but they're steered by a little rudder. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest fire, a forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire. A world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. No human being, verse 8, can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Wow. You think you think the Bible takes our words seriously? It's really hard to control what you say. In fact, I think it's so hard. Um, I think it's so hard that it's actually... Try this for a moment. I think it's almost impossible to imagine a world where nobody lied or misrepresented the truth. Think about it. It's unimaginable. I mean... What would it actually be like? I mean, there'd be almost no novels or sitcoms or movies <laughs> because the premise, the plot of so many movies and stories 
is a character tells a lie and then spends the rest of the movie trying to uh, work around the consequences of that lie, undo the consequences of that lie. As Shakespeare said, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Lies compound. Untruth compounds over time. Lies are everywhere. As, John, as, as Scott Peck said, we are the people of the lie. We lie to ourselves about ourselves. The words we tell ourselves about ourselves are out of step with reality. We lie to each other. We lie to God. We can't do it. We are compulsive, addicted liars. Aren't we? Just try and imagine a world with no lies. Where you only, where we only ever told the truth. I had a friend say to me an extraordinarily helpful thing that helped me make sense of my family. Uh, he said, how do you know when an addict is lying? It's when their lips are moving. How do you know when an addict is lying? It's when their lips are moving. Now, that is you know, so helpful for me. I have n- numerous addicts in my family and Their lies have caused enormous pain and destruction. But we're all addicts, aren't we? We're addicted in a variety of ways, some highly sophisticated and others more chemically dependent. We are all addicted to the proposition that we're in control of our lives and we've got to make our lives work. We're addicted to the proposition that... that We are our own little gods. And you see, that's why we have to lie. Because if I'm my own little god, I've got to try and make reality conform to what I want it to be. I can't see it as it is. I can't live in it as it is. It's too painful, too difficult, so anything that threatens my sense of being at the center, I filter out and I distort, and then I have to manage reality for others, uh, and I have to manage it for myself, because here's the thing that God does that we can't do, but we try to do. God is responsible for outcomes. We're not. See, as creatures, we can take action freely in the world, and that's a wonderful thing but we can't control what happens with those outcomes further down the line in time. Only God can do that because he's God. When I take the responsibility upon myself based on this addiction to thinking that I'm God, I then also feel the crushing weight of having to control the outcomes. And if I've got to control the outcomes, then I've got to lie because I've got to control you. I've got to try and make sure that the world works. I have to. I have to deny unpleasant parts of reality because I'm an addict to control and the illusion that I'm God. Now, if you think that you don't have a problem with untruth and lying, it's only because you haven't really been tested in that area. That's the point of James 3, I think. James uses this language uh, so so powerfully and evocatively and viscerally to say, you know what, this really is what you like. (laughs) Now, I I understand 
Some of you here might go, no, no, I'm not that bad, Mark. I get that. And I think if you think you're not that bad, the only reason you can do that is because you haven't really been tested. You haven't really had to lie. <laughs> the moral testing has never really come upon you with sufficient pressure to bring out what's inside. It's like I might think, I forgive the gym metaphor, but it's useful for me. I, I think I might think that I'm really strong, and I go around and go, well, I'm really strong. Mm, me strong. Uh. And then I go to the gym, and, uh, and I'm doing some bench presses, and some big guy at the gym comes on and goes, well, let's see what you can really do, and whacks on 200 kilograms of plates onto the, onto the bar. And now I'm there, and I'm strong, and I'm strong, but now I'm really being tested, and I discover I can't even lift the jolly bar off the thing, and if I do, it's just going to crush me. I think the only, the only way we can pretend we're not addicted to lying is if we haven't really been tested. Because it's there, right? Because our hearts are divided. This is what James says. The real problem you see is our hearts. Our hearts are committed to being in the place of God. So, um, this is why some people find these series a bit depressing. Because <laughs> it's jolly depressing, isn't it? I don't know about you, it's kind of miserable. So what's the answer? Well, here's the answer that it gives us, the fourth and final instruction at the end of all of this. Three words, and this is why people think this little passage could be the central hinge of the book of Ecclesiastes, because this points us towards the, the resolution of the tensions of Ecclesiastes. It says this, Therefore, do what? Fear God. Fear God. Well, what does that mean? How is fearing God going to be the resolution to your addiction to trying to be God and therefore lying compulsively to maintain that way of life in big and little ways? Well, fear God. Understand, firstly, that you're not God. You're a creature, not a creator. Honor and respect that distinction. Realize moment by moment that you are not in control of your life and you are not and cannot be in control of the outcomes of your decisions, but that there is a God who loves you and cares for you and is sovereignly looking after you as a loving Father so that you don't have to you don't have to misrepresent reality to try and protect yourself or to control the outcomes because protecting you and controlling the outcomes are God's job, not yours. Now, uh, fearing God is not in the first instance about terror. You know, we sometimes fear is very negative. I'm scared of God. It's okay to be scared of God, actually, I, I think. I think sometimes we... If, if there is a God, as we think there is, it's okay to be a little scared. In fact, it's okay to be highly scared. In fact, it's okay to be terrified at one level because, listen, all the idea of a completely all-knowing being who sees your hypocrisy, imagine that. 
Imagine that. Imagine someone in the world who knows every little lie you tell yourself and you tell other people, who knows every little gap between what you profess to be and what you actually do. Imagine that person, there is some person who exists who sees all of that. Now imagine that person has the power of life over death over you. You go, that's terrifying. So how does trusting this, how, is, how are you going to get yourself to a place where you can fe- fear, trust, live hand in hand with this God? Well, uh, the only way to do it is to fear the God who we see in the face of Jesus Christ. The only thing that will change our hearts to bring us to a place where we can strip aside our addictions to lying and strip away all the distortions of ourselves and of others is not to come to an abstract being or God, but to come to the God we see in the face of Jesus Christ. Let me unpack that for you a little more. Why? When God comes into the world in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, which is a central claim of Christianity, that God existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a community of love. He comes into the world enfleshed in Jesus Christ. At the beginning of John's Gospel, he says, in the beginning was the Word. Okay, John 14, verse 6, memory verse, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. So Jesus is the Word of God, and Jesus is the truth, the ultimate true Word, representing accurately all that God is in His very being, representing accurately all that we are in our very being. The only way to come to a place where really we can fear God and have our own lies healed is to come to the Word of God who is truth and let His truth and His Word heal us and set us free. You see, what what is the truth that the Word of God speaks over you and me? What is the truth about you? What is the truth about me? It's important to know, right? Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. So where then is going to come the freedom from hypocrisy, the freedom from lies, the freedom to be a community of truth? Well, it's when we hear the truth of the word of the gospel that Jesus speaks over us, and what is that word? Well, the truth of God speaks to you and to me and says, you and I are way, way, way worse than we could ever have believed possible. We really are. Our hearts are so divided. We are addicts to to idolatry. We are addicts to lies. We are way worse. the, The demons are in far deeper than we could have believed. We can't just fix ourselves. That's the truth. God knows we try, don't we? In our best moments, we try to be people of the truth. In our best moments, we try to make the world work. But what we discover is we just can't. All sorts of reasons why. We are way worse. You are way worse. I am way worse. I don't even know the extent of the lies I tell me about me. (laughs) 
you don't even know. And our lies compound and send us and all of this world into a conflagration of hell. That's what happens. Why didn't nations go to war? Because of the lies and the words that we tell. Why did couples end up in you know, broken relationships and divorce? Because of the lies and the untruths and the words that we speak. So we're way worse. That's the first part of the truth, the word that Jesus says. And, and if you think about it, actually, it has to be true. Like, because if we could have fixed this stuff up in ourselves, then Jesus wouldn't have had to come to heal us, right? Like, it's, it's, we've got to be pretty bad for God to have to come and die to fix it up. That's pretty bad right there. But the second thing is, not only are we way worse than we could ever have believed possible, have believed, we are far more loved than we could ever have dared to hope You are far more loved than you could ever, ever have dared to hope. The God who sees every little bit of my hypocrisy, of my addiction to self, this God sees me and loves me so much that he will give himself for me to die for me. That's how much God loves me. And that is more than I could ever have dared hoped. See, if God can love me seeing me as I utterly truly am, then and only then do I start to get the spiritual power to become a man of truth because I'm loved. I don't have to pretend. You, as you know the love of Jesus, that word of love spoken into your life, you find the power to turn from deceit and lies and misrepresentation and denial and move into the truth because you know that there is a person who has seen that you at your worst and has loved you enough to die for you and this is a God who is utterly committed to your well-being and that, that, that your life will end well. You will be loved. You will be secure. You will be safe. You will be free. You will be glorious. You will be wonderful. So you don't have to lie or pretend or fight or curse or sin to get there because that's your destiny. That's my destiny. And it's secure in the love of God. And there's nothing about me that can threaten that because it's bought, paid for already by the death of Jesus on your behalf and my behalf. So there's power to be free from our addiction to self. There's power to be a people of the truth. If we want it. pray. Our God, forgive us for our addiction to self that leads to hypocrisy, leads to 
our mouths leading us into sin. And Lord God, pour your Holy Spirit out on us to change our hearts in the moment, here and now, so that we can fear you. That we can know how desperate our plight is and how extraordinary and exquisite and extravagant your love is. And weave us together then as a community of truth and of life and of hope. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.